Well, you're in your little room And you're working on something good But if it's really good You're gonna need a bigger room And when you're in the bigger room You might not know what to do You might have to think of how you got started Sitting in your little room da da Oh, that was a great song choice, actually, to uh, open our conversation. So today, first of all, let me say that today we're going to be talking a lot about architecture. And we talk about a lot of things on this show. And, and these things all fall on a gradient in terms of how much I know about them. And architecture would be something that I probably know less about than many of the things about which I am actually inadequately informed but still manage to talk about on the radio. But we'll see how, how well we do here. Uh, now, why are we talking about architecture today? Good question. Thanks for asking it. Uh, it's mainly because well, we, we, we started with the, this whole thing with uh, Munger Hall at the University of California, Santa Barbara. If you haven't been following this story, uh, this billionaire, he's like the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. He's 97 years old, and he donated $200 million towards this $1.5 billion project that will result, if built, it will result in the biggest dormitory in the world, um, which is either a good thing or a bad thing. It would house 4,500 students. About 94% of the bedrooms would not have windows. They would instead have these kind of virtual windows, which, get this, are somewhat modeled on the portholes uh, in Disney cruise ships. You know, it really isn't. There really aren't a lot of things about cruise ships that you want to have transferred to your terrestrial experience as opposed to your aquatic experience, and it might be one of them. Uh, anyway, it's highly controversial. Um, the the rooms themselves would be a seven by ten, um, and so <laughs> um, anyway, so there's been quite an uproar about that, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But it got us talking too about human beings and architecture and what the relationship is between human beings and architecture and whether it changes much over time. Uh, and it made me think also about whether I've – I give a lot of graduation speeches. At least I used to. I don't think I've ever seen a public high school <laughs> that wasn't really kind of ugly and boxy. And like, why would that be? Why would public high schools have to be so – why couldn't they look nice? There's a lot of questions that I have. So a little bit later, we're going to talk about the um, architecture and ethics and kind of how that particularly manifests itself in the design of prisons. Uh, we'll also talk towards the end about architecture and sacred spaces, architecture and the numinous. Uh, but we're going to begin with a, kind of a more generalized conversation, maybe talk a little bit about the Munger Hall project and, and also about brutalism, a poorly understood school of architecture. To do that, we have a Mark Pasnick, uh, an architect whose practice is called Over Under. He's also a professor at Wentworth Institute of Technology and the author of Heroic. Concrete Architecture and the New Boston. Uh, Joseph Heathcott, also with us, a chair of Urban and Environmental Studies at the New School. So um, I, I want to have a more general conversation about whether, whether and how uh, buildings feel good for human beings. But maybe we could just begin briefly by touching on this Munger Hall project. Um, and Mark Pasnick, I'll start with you. I, I guess my question is, do you see this as probably – kind of a one-off, I guess it would be a two-off because there's a similar building funded by the same guy at University of Michigan, I think, uh, but a, a, um, an aberration, a sui generis aberration, or, or might this be part of the future of architecture, substituting kind of virtual or digital simulations 
for things like natural light? I mean, we, we seem to be living in a more digital or virtual world these days with things like NFTs. Uh, is, is architecture apt to head in that direction? Uh, well, thank you for having me. And I would say a resounding, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I think that this building is really uh, a kind of uh, hugely problematic vision for the future, um, especially in an era of a pandemic where it's not just about natural light, which we know has a psychological effect on people, but it's also about ventilation, uh, connection to nature, all these things that are really essential to our well-being in a building um, that are being eliminated from a group of people. I mean, prisons tend to have windows. Uh, why shouldn't grad students? It seems to me a, a, a really perverse way of saving money. Right. Although uh, Charles Munger was quoted as saying, it's quite endurable, which is an odd way to boast about a, a building. It's quite endurable, especially with good ventilation. Um, so, yeah. I, 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 so, Joseph Heathcott, are, are you in agreement or do you see anything there? Uh, anything, at least in that urge to see if you can digitally simulate something that's ordinarily natural? Is, is there anything there that might portend a certain kind of future for a certain kind of architecture? No. <laughs> you want to so, you want to uh, think it over first, or <laughs> no? No, I I think I could uh, give a resounding no to that, and I would simply uh, say that I I couldn't agree more with Mark on this. Um, I, I think it is, it it's not only bizarre; it's just unnecessary. I mean, architects spent the last thousand years working out <laughs> these questions about what people need in terms of adequate light, space, and air. Uh, this was amplified quite a bit in the 19th century and 20th centuries as architects had to figure out how to deliver these things into multi-unit structures, like apartment buildings, things like that. These these questions have been settled, um, and I think we've come around to this this notion uh, that you can replicate these things uh, digitally or, or with uh, certain kinds of uh, luminant technologies, but I just don't think it's the same thing. I think it maybe it will be if we ever see Charles Munger and his associates at Berkshire Hathaway, when their bedrooms don't have windows and have these kinds of insertions, then maybe we will have traveled far. But my sense is that they all have windows in their own bedrooms uh, and so that it should be good enough for students as well. So, yeah, Mark, one of the things that that uh, Munger and, and this project is, is t are touting is something that I think used to be in a different context, a kind of principle of design, and that is the idea of having a very small and not particularly hospitable bedroom and then going out into a lot of common spaces. Hotels, my sense of hotels in the 19th century and maybe even early 20th century was that you tended to find that much more. The room wasn't necessarily all that great because you were expected to go down into common areas. People didn't have TVs to watch in their rooms. They certainly didn't have laptops and internet and stuff like that. So so you did. You didn't stay up in your room. You went down someplace and you talked to a lot of people and you, you found out things. Um, and, and Munger and, and his backers are saying this kind of does the same thing. It pushes people out into common spaces. It, it doesn't seem to me that we should be deciding that uh, the private space of living needs to be so terrible that people are forced <laughs> to go to meet and be collective together. It seems like there could be a balance where you have a pleasant space to study in, in a solo fashion. I'm, I'm a professor and I know my students sometimes need their quiet time. They shouldn't always be surrounded by other people. 
Uh, and that's what, you know, the room can be both a place to study as well as a place to sleep, uh, as well as a place to just uh, break the daily cycle of intensity that is college education very often. So I, I don't see that there's any reason not to still have some sort of pleasant uh, and maybe basic humanity to the space where you sleep. Uh, you know, we, I, I think um, Joseph's talking about the tenements of New York, for instance, as a kind of model that maybe this is based on, where too many people were living in too small places with not enough natural light or ventilation. I think it's really an equivalent there. Um, and I, I would be deeply concerned if I were a member of that university that in a few years that building is going to be obsolete uh, or needs to be converted to some other kind of use that doesn't require daylight. So this circles us back to what you were talking about before, Joseph, which is you know that architecture has thought long and hard and for a long period of time about what people do need in a built environment, either a living environment, working environment, third space environment. Say a little bit more about that. What what are the the basics, the the sine qua knowns? What what can't we live without? Well, yeah, I mean, there are just a few things that it's relatively basic, and certainly Mark uh, will know this uh, much better than I, as, as, as he is a practicing architect. I'm an architectural historian by training, uh, but certainly um, it's adequate light, air, and space. I mean, it's not, it's not more complicated than that. Um, and you can, you can um, you know, different cultures over time have worked out different uh, balances between those things. But at the very, uh, at the very sort of bottom line is that uh, enough light, air, and space uh, to live adequately is what's required of architecture. Uh, and different cultures have figured out how to do that within their limits, right? And we are certainly no different. Uh, why we're bucking hundreds of years of, of really hard fought uh, wisdom is kind of beyond me. I'm not sure why we got to this place. Um, Although I have my suspicions that it has to do with saving money or uh, fitting lots of people into really tiny spaces. But um, this seems to be where we've gotten. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's about saving money. If you can think of a $1.5 billion dormitory project <laughs> as, as a kind of penny-pinching operation, but to house that right. many people. And so, I mean, Mark, that kind of also gets back to a basic question about what is architecture supposed to do? Uh, is it supposed to, I mean, what you're doing here basically is housing or containing uh, people. It's a little bit like those capsule hotels in Japan, right, where you just kind of slide into this one little space and, and come out of it when it's time to catch your train or, or whatever. But it would seem as though aspirationally uh, architecture would want to do more than just be a container. It's true. And, um, you know, can aspire to a lot more. Uh, there is a great uh, book called The Architecture of Happiness, which I enjoy. And mm. um, the, uh, the author says, um, I'm going to quote him, uh, the noblest architecture can sometimes do less for us than a siesta or an aspirin. Um, so sometimes architecture can't do everything for us, but I think that it can provide a good platform for us to, to live a healthy and, and uh, safe life. That would be maybe one thing I'd add to uh, Joseph's point of view is that, you know, uh, space, light, and air, also safety would be a part of that. So your building shouldn't fall down. You should be able to escape it in a fire, uh, which is one of the reasons most codes across the, the world, really, the International Building Code requires uh, a certain size and dimension of opening so that in the case of a fire, an extreme fire, that there's still a route out of the building. So that's that's another aspect of this that I think is weakened in the, in the Munger project. So let's 
talk a little bit more generally too. So when this came up and we were having a, a, a staff meeting and talking about it and and here I am, the self-confessed person who doesn't know anything about architecture, but I said, well, we should probably talk about brutalism because I encounter brutalist architecture from time to time uh, here in Hartford at Trinity College. There's a, I think called the Jacobs Life Science Center, which is considered to be an, uh, an, um, an example of, of brutalism. This is a kind of mid-20th century um, movement that, um, well, Mark, I'll let you you describe it. I mean, I think the, the name is a little bit misleading, right? It sounds like it's a cruel kind of architecture, which which would which would fit the Munger project, but but maybe not so much of what we see uh, around cities around the world. Yeah, so brutalism, especially uh, internationally, is is derived from well, it has many derivations, but the one that it's most often attributed to is the architecture of Le Corbusier, the French Swiss architect, uh, who developed a, a kind of co- raw concrete language shortly after World War II when uh, the landscape of Europe was uh, in trouble and when there wasn't the kind of skilled labor uh, available. Uh, and so it was a kind of rough material. And the British in the 50s took that up, uh, and the historian Rainer Banham coined the term the new brutalism as a way of reflecting the realities of the time, the realities of construction, the, the honesty of the building expressing itself. And so those are the kinds of principles that brutalism is based on. Um, brutalism came to the US in the 60s, almost a decade later. It, um, it was a time, you know, in the 50s, London was really struggling and that was sort of, you know, brutalism was meant to show the raw nature of, 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 of that time. Uh, in the 60s, the U.S. is expanding uh, vastly and creating a lot of civic infrastructure during the era of JFK's New Frontiers and uh, the Great Society under uh, LBJ. Uh, and so many universities and uh, 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 various organizations and government bodies all are expanding rapidly. And this language of a monumental concrete architecture was very attractive as a kind of antidote to the glass and steel architecture of the previous decade that was associated with corporate um, with corporate architecture. So it's really a movement that's about civic identity, about monumentality that's reflective of public life. Um, I think it's been interpreted in almost the exact opposite way today, but that, those are the origins of it. Yeah, I, let me just stay with you on this for a second because I think that's interesting. I, I... Uh, I used to, back in the 80s, teach writing at Trinity College, and I would ha- make my young aspiring writers, uh, who knew a lot about themselves and not that much about anything else, uh, go around and ask questions. And I, I would, every year, turn them loose in the Jacobs Life Science Center and just say, I want you to just go all over this building talking to people, uh, talk to the people who work here, ask questions, learn more about it. And, you know, you found that there was a thriving existence inside this building. But the building from the outside did look a little bit menacing, did look a little bit anti-humanistic. And the scale of things inside said to me that the individual life, whether human or animal, was worth relatively little, that there was some other greater purpose being evoked here in this uh, in this building devoted to the life sciences. So I don't know. How do we get past I, I think there's something a little bit we, – we're a little bit reflexively turned off by stuff like that or the Pirelli Tire Building in New Haven, which is right next to Ikea, uh, the Yale Art and Architecture Building in New Haven, also an uh, example of brutalism. I don't know. It isn't everybody's natural reaction to go, wow, what a beautiful, welcoming building. So how do we get past our, our reflexes on this? Well, I think um, there are a couple of ways to think about it. One is to understand the buildings a little bit better and that they were not 
built with diabolical fortress-like <laughs> sensibilities. Many of them were, were seen as very open and um, uh, uh, sort of promoting public life. I mean, Boston City Hall is perhaps one of the best known examples. And the architects thought of that as the people's building, as a place for protest and celebration and uh, other kinds of aspects of um, celebratory outlook. And I think people have reinterpreted over the decades um, in, in a more nefarious light. Uh, as though it was meant to be a bunker. And that, that's very true. I mean, there's always a myth on every campus that the building was built in order to uh, stop the riots on campus. And, and that's absolutely not true. Um, so we have some, I think, misimpressions of the buildings. I think there are also, many of them are now 50 years old, which is a problem. Uh, my colleagues call it the ugly valley. It's the point in which uh, buildings hit their 50 year life cycle and they're too, uh, you know, they're they're too young to be considered old and they're too old to be considered young. Uh, and sort of in that moment, they're at their greatest risk and usually at the nadir of their public uh, reception. And I think we're facing that right now with the brutalist period. It's also happened to other periods. The Victorian architecture was seen as monstrous and ugly. The uh, French Second Empire was seen similarly. So we have a pattern of getting this distance from certain buildings and thinking that they're bad or ugly. Uh, and I think that we're facing that right now with, with brutalism. I will say, though, that every building that reaches that era needs a little help. And I think that brutalism can be, uh, brutalist buildings can be improved tremendously. If you go to UMass Dartmouth, for instance, um, there's a transformation of the library there. It's a building by Paul Rudolph, the same architect who did the art and architecture building at Yale. Uh, and that, you know, brings in softer materials, warmer colors, those sorts of things that were actually part of the original vision, but had disappeared over time. Yeah. So, uh, Joseph, I mean, in a way, what we want, uh, I think, are college campuses or urban environments where the architecture interacts with people in a successful way that it's nice to look at and visit from the outside, but also nice to live in or work inside. It's, it's good for both experiences. So, I mean, as we look at the 21st century as it unfolds. I mean, how, are things going to change in some discernible way? Uh, are we going to get more of that or less of that? Well, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think, um, you know, I'd certainly love to hear what Mark has to say about this, but I, I, I feel like in many ways, um, you know, architecture has reached a kind of impasse about what to do next. And <laughs> uh, I think in terms of, of design, uh, there is a tendency more and more to shift away from these questions of, of pure form, uh, which were the questions that really animated the architects who were uh, pioneering the brutalist era. And, and by the way, I'm quite a, a fan of, of brutalist architecture. Uh, I think like any style, it has uh, both wonderful examples and terrible examples, like any other kind of architecture. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we've shifted, we're we were beginning to shift away from uh, uh, sort of focus on pure form and more to questions of things like sustainability, uh, material life cycle, uh, uh, ages of materials, um, you know, a whole range of other questions, I mean, or questions of urbanity, uh, all these sorts of things that architecture is a part of, uh, but that have been superseded in one way or another for so long by, by questions of pure form and style. And I think we're getting to a, a new era, but we don't quite have the language yet to, to express what that actually does in practice. And, and architects are working on that right now, but we, but I think it's still a, 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 there's a long way to go. Um, Mark, Mark Pasek, just react to that. Well, I think it's true, but I also, on some levels, uh, think that 
you know, sustainability, Paul Rudolph was famous for uh, many of his buildings, many of his big concrete buildings, as well as his earlier buildings, have sustain having sustainable ideas to them, that there was light control and other things. So it hasn't, hasn't exactly been um, absent from the discourse of architecture. Uh, on the other hand, it has been integrated in, in form driving too. And I think that that's actually an interesting, it, it may be that I, I would say in response that we can have our cake and eat it too, that architecture, mm -hmm could be about formal things that, you know, inspire us and that uh, uh, motivate us and make us uh, feel wonderful or even um, uh, empowered or maybe something more bold uh, at the same time that it can answer some of the, um, the other kinds of questions that Joseph is asking, which I think are essential. You know, it's an essential component of architecture. It's what makes architecture interesting to me. It's both a cultural and a technical practice and it needs to do both. And yeah, I, and I totally agree. I think if if you look at the history of brutalism, though, it's certainly with Paul Rudolph's work. Um, you know, Rudolph uh, in, in many ways did lead with the formal questions, uh, and materials followed. Now we would ask the question reverse uh, because we understand how devastating concrete and cement can be environmentally, and so we might ask a different question, which might lead to a different set of forms, rather than starting with the formal. And I think that's kind of where things are going with architecture, but it's just taking some time to ratchet into that. Uh, way of doing things. All right. I'm going to write uh, to be continued under this conversation. You guys are terrific to listen to, though. I feel like I've, I've learned a lot already. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. <laughs> you guys should have your own podcast. Um, all right. So having planted that seed, we are going to take a little break here. Thanks to Mark Pasnick, architect whose practice is called Over Under. He's also a professor at Wentworth Institute of Technology, author of Heroic Concrete Architecture and the New Boston. Joseph Heathcott is chair of Urban and Environmental Studies at the New School. When we come back, let's talk about architecture and ethics. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. 
Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Okay, so, um, you know, apropos of Munger Hall again for a second, one thing that's happened already is one of the architects on the University of California Santa Barbara Review Board created a story by, by resigning from that board and writing a letter condemning the project more or less on ethical grounds, not just that it's bad architecture, but that it's wrong. It's there's ethically or morally uh, wrong. Uh, you, you do see that a lot. Actually, there's also an organization called the AIA, the American Institute of Architects. Their Santa, Santa Barbara chapter has issued a, a kind of a similar uh, condemnation of that. So we don't really think, I don't, th- except for Albert Speer, who is obviously a morally wrong architect, we don't really think so much, commonly anyway, of architecture as being full of questions of right or wrong. But uh, let's do that a little bit with uh, Shalini uh, Agrawal, uh, an associate professor in the Critical Ethnic Studies Program at California College for the Arts. She is also director and co-founder of Pathways to Equity and founder and principal of Public Design for Equity. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation to join today's conversation. So let's talk about that. Those questions uh, about uh, about ethics. I mean, one of the places this comes up is obviously in prisons. Uh, one of our guests in the first segment mentioned prisons and saying that even prisons are committed, you know, mostly to windows and th- things that don't exist necessarily in, in Munger Hall. But but prisons are a pretty complicated thing for architects, right? There's there's a way in which they are not necessarily meant to at least some of them to foster uh, human development and happiness, quite the opposite in some cases. So so how, how does or how should the profession look at that question? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I think it's really complicated. I think, um, you know, it really is about like, what is the responsibility of a profession that has um, you know, has made a commitment to the health, well-being, and safety of people. Um, that is how we're trained. That is how we are. Um, and I and I should add, I have a background in architecture. I have been trained and I practice for a number of years. So I come from this, from that experience as well. Is you know, so much of what we were we are taught in education and design um, is really like how do we design for the health, well-being, and safety. And that, that is also a requirement uh, within the uh, a, uh, licensing requirements uh, to center that. So, you know, where's that line? That's really kind of what I'm always uh, curious about, like, as a, um, as a profession. Where's our line where we say, like, this design is, does not, does or does not meet health and well-being of, of human beings? And, um, and what, you know, what is the right of people to have um, housing or a place to live? And, and in fact, there's people who don't have housing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what is our, what is our, our responsibility to say, like, when do we look up from our drawings? Because oftentimes architects are kind of the people in the middle, if you will, between developer and client and say, hey, there's something wrong here. Um, this could, this we should not be designing this. And I, and I look to a lot of historical context of how um, back in the 1940s, there was this practice of redlining where people decided um, who got home loans and who did not. And, um, and they took maps and they literally drew red lines. And they were, in fact, um, very much on racial 
uh, along race, racial neighborhoods, like racial lines. So you would, they were definitely deciding like, well, the, these group of people who are um, non-white will not get um, home loans. And therefore you can see the impacts of having, not having home equity. And these people on this side will have um, access to financial um, resources. And, you know, to me, like, like at what point do we as designers and planners look up and say, hey, this isn't ethical. And so th that's a lot of the questions that I'm always thinking about. So I, it's a long, long answer to your, your question, but I think it is very, um, it is um, simple and yet complicated, if, if that makes sense. Well, it seems like it's a landscape that would shift under your feet also uh, as design changes and fluctuates. I'm thinking in terms of just even the basic question of space. So when I say that Munger Hall, the rooms are seven yes. feet by, by 10 feet, that seems too small. On the other hand, we've gone through a period uh, of pretty innovative design that looks at maximizing the use of space, whether it's the tiny house movement or, I mean, all of most of us by now have stayed in micro hotels or whatever you call them, where these rooms are incredibly tiny, but they're really well designed so that ultimately yes. you can do most of what you need to do uh, in these spaces. So it, 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 there probably aren't too many fixed constants here where we could say, oh, well, if you make it that small, it's inhumane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, one other like reflection from Munger Hall um, is that I was reading about a student that had to stay in in their dorm room over uh, for two weeks straight because of shelter in place, co you know, COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I'm I was and it was really oppressive. So I think um, you, you bring up a, a really good question. I, I think, you know, is that you know, yes, we are designing, we're learning to design smaller, um, smaller spaces more efficiently. Um, but again, I'm like, are there standards of what that is, right? And, and who gets to choose, right? Do, do we, does someone who want, wants a tiny home? Um, yes. Okay, great. You want a tiny home, but who are we to decide who gets, who gets uh, a tiny home, who gets a window, who gets fresh air and who doesn't? Like, I think that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. And, you know, it's, when you think about something like a prison, uh, and I, I should say that uh, the architecture critic uh, of The New Yorker, Paul Goldberger, his immediate response to Munger Hall, well, he called the plans a grotesque, sick joke, a jail masquerading as a dormitory. But when we think about actual prisons, there's also a question about function too, right? I mean, uh, just to sort of put it globally. I mean, you're, in Europe, prisons tend to be more buildings where rehabilitation is supposed to be taking place. I mean, the entire system is set up that way with that goal to get people back into society, kind of to decriminalize them, get them back into society as functioning people. So ha having a really harsh uh, environment where, you know, you're trying to eke out survival every day, uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, here in America, we, we really can't make up our minds, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the supermax prisons often are about as harsh as they can be and are kind of designed to limit things like windows and the corridors are kind of disorientingly, uh, you know, without color, without shape or form. But there are other prisons where maybe, you know, they, they're, they're trying to make some kind of environment where a person could live and maybe even grow and improve. But I don't know that we necessarily, once again, have these immutable platonic standards about like what a prison should be architecturally. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to step back to, to, you know, you bring up a really great point about how, um, uh, 
you know, other other countries are really looking as this system of incarceration as rehabilitation. And so really, really, again, I'm, I'm always questioning the system, maybe less the, the um, product, which is oftentimes where architects are placed. Um, like, what is the system that has perpetuated this um, design from being approved? And I kind of also look at Munger Hall, right? Like, what? How did it get so far <laughs> that it was okay to actually, you know, make it um, as a rendering and in the news? Like, at some point, like, who, who, like, there were a lot of approvals that were being put in place. And so I think also with um, the incarceration system, I'm always thinking about like, well, what, why is, you know, what are the systems that are being put in place, and um, in terms of how we view um, what our incarceration systems uh is for you know is it is it for solely for punishment is it um and why is it for rehabilitation you know why can't we re-envision i i always tell um my students and my other colleagues i'll say you know one of the things that architects um get a training is uh in is is being creative Mm -hmm. with our problem solving why why are we still designing within a system that has been defined by other systems that are inequitable. And um, why can't we also re-envision what it is, not just in terms of building, but in terms of actually um, programming, right? Like how, how might we think about different ways in which we um, rehabilitate in society and who gets to choose? Again, I'm always like, who gets to make those decisions and why? And where are those decisions coming from? And who holds the power and who's get, who's benefiting? <laughs> you know, these are, these are questions that um, I'm always thinking about almost like what's the ecosystem of something, a decision that's been made that like all of a sudden makes us respond like, hey, this isn't, this isn't right. Like some a series of decisions have been made for that to make it through. And so to me, I'm always like wondering, well, how did that happen? Right. I, I think Munger Hall, I mean, it's done everything it needs to do at uh, UCSB at this point, but I think it has to go through two different reviews, maybe at the state level, maybe Board of Regents, stuff like that. But you raise an interesting question, which is if it's going to house 4,500 4, students, should some students be part of the process, the design review process, or maybe even input before the design review process, even before there's a design to review? Should there be almost mandatory input from students? And, and maybe you'd say the same thing about prisoners. Maybe an incarcerated yeah. incarcerated people should would have some wisdom about what incarceration should and should not be. Yeah, no, thank you for, for that as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, again, our, our, the way we're educated, and I, wouldn't, I would say this is for many of us in our, in our professional backgrounds, is that we are, we are trained to come with the answers. And yes, there is definitely some benefit of having the answers, of understanding um, uh, you know, systems, if you will, um, of building, of law, of health. But this is only one way of living, designing, um, treating people and representing people. And um, I truly believe that actually bringing in people, communities, those who are most impacted by the buildings that we're, we're designing, um, that they need to be brought into the process. In fact, my whole career is actually based on 
uh, bringing community into the design process. And um, there's a really great firm who really has done this. It's uh, Designing Justice, Designing Space, and Deanna Van Buren does exactly this. She brings in people who have been impacted by the incarceration system to the design process to actually like, mm. not just like how, how, you know, what is wrong with the system of, of um, incarceration and housing, but what can be healing and re restorative? It's even going one step farther. And so I really invite architects to think about like, how might this, how might a process of design not just be meeting the needs, but actually healing um, and actually um, going beyond, if you will, what we are trained to do and really that can happen from engaging people um, and it can be you know people who have been incarcerated but it can be anybody anyone who's who's going to be using the the space and i would even go so far as not just people using the space but the building that sits in an ecosystem so the neighbors the community because um we we have to we have to think about design in in relationship with other people not just for the, the users of the building, but actually in relationship with other people around a building, around a community. And I would say also with the environment, like how can we actually think about buildings as living human beings and that actually are in relationship with everything else around us. And um, yeah, I, I really strongly believe in, in the input of having others uh, in the design process. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, I've spent, because I've had two people in my family with some pretty significant medical problems, a lot of time in hospitals recently. And first of all, one thing that you notice in hospitals is that doctors and nurses and other people, <laughs> they're always complaining about the building, even even if it's a pretty good building. They'll go, well, it's, and they don't have this, they don't have that, or it's like this every day, or it gets really, really hot over here, you know, in the afternoon, and it's unbearable and nobody can work there. Or one thing that I've noticed in a lot of hospitals is that uh, the patient rooms will often have windows, but not a window you could see at out of if you're bedridden. Um, if you can't get out of bed, you can't look out the window. And a lot of people in hospitals are stuck in beds. So it is, as you're saying, really like all the stakeholders from the neighborhood to the patient to the nurse to the doctor to everybody else, they should all probably be part of that conversation. Yeah. I mean, um, I thank you for bringing up healthcare. I do think that, um, you know, again, I think we approach healthcare as like almost like you you're there right at that you know kind of at the last resort like nobody wants to be in those buildings right we're always like kind of avoiding having to um be in the hospital and not that we should be wanting to be there but you know how might we also take a different approach to health and and, and re be create spaces that we might um find more i don't know less less stressful Right. So we also and that's, again, part of a larger system of maybe how we address health and maybe are there places within a hospital that might provide like some quiet or some, you know, contemplative spaces or, you know, like, can we think of like other ways in which we might incorporate healing um, that is also um, where we're, we're thinking of healing, maybe more of a spectrum of healing where maybe and I and I'm just brainstorming here. Um, I have been working with uh, an ER physician about like how might we re-envision the ER space, right? So like we come to the ER and we're all we're thinking like it's an emergency, but some sometimes people want to be heard and just you know because we're waiting sometimes. And so how might we have like more listening, right? Like how could we actually think about the functions of our spaces um, in different ways so that like 
what is needed is more than just one response or a few responses, but it could be um, a spectrum. And they could also include like um, what I like to call softer skills, like rather than um, everything being perhaps um, you know, I, I'll say like, we're trained to be hammers. So everything looks like a nail. So for architects, like, um, everything looks like housing, but perhaps listening to someone and what they need to bring and what they need in terms of housing or in terms of living or in terms of care might actually hold some of the best, um, answers. Uh, in fact, I have seen that happen. Um, so I can actually say it does hold the best answers. Yeah. Talk to people. It just might work. Uh, Shalini Agarwal, thank you so much for your time. Associate professor in the Critical Ethnic Studies Program at California College for the Arts, also director and co-founder of Pathways to Equity, founder and principal of of public design for equity. We'll take a little break here. I want to talk a little bit about the spiritual dimension of architecture, even secular architecture after this. All right, we're back. Thanks today to Cat Pastor, our technical producer, uh, for making all this happen so beautifully, uh, and to Lily Tyson, senior producer of the Kyle and McEnroe Show, producer of this particular episode. Also, uh, you might want if you're listening live, know that we are available on all podcasting platforms. Tell your friends uh, to listen to us on any podcasting platform. Uh, all right, so. I'm really looking forward to this part of the show. It's probably the, my place of greatest interest, and that is the whole question uh, of spirituality, sacred spaces, ways in which even secular buildings communicate a spiritual message. Uh, joining us now to talk about that is Julio Bermudez, director of the Sacred Space and Cultural Studies Graduate Concentration Program of the Catholic University of America School of Architecture and Planning. He's also the editor of Transcending Architecture, Contemporary Views on Sacred Space, and co-editor of Architecture, Culture, and Spirituality. I'm going to be begin by reading your own words to you. Um, If we ask professionals and scholars about the mission of architecture, most of them would agree that architecture is called to do a lot more than to guarantee the public health, safety, and welfare of building users. In fact, most would say that the promise of architecture begins fulfillment when such expectations have been met and transcended, but transcended into what? Will outstanding building functionality, economy, sustainability, formalism, and even symbolism do it? At first sight, any of these accomplishments would seem good enough. But upon reflection, a majority of us would concede that transcending architecture insinuates something much deeper. Uh, well, that sounds great. <laughs> and, and so the question is, how do you quantify it? How do you look at it? Uh, and first of all, welcome to our show. I don't think I said that yet. Thank you. So one way to quantify and look at it would be, I don't know, you could uh, take uh, MRI eyes of people looking at certain buildings. Uh, you know, you actually did that. What did you learn? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, how you measure the unmeasurable, right? Right. That's a difficult one. Um, yeah, I have conducted some uh, fMRI with functional, you know, imaging uh, systems and on how people perceive uh, two different kind of buildings, buildings that have been designed with the objective to produce some sort of contemplative spiritual response and just ordinary buildings like, you know, an office or an ordinary uh, home or a shopping mall. And what we found is that um, 
fall. First, there is a substantial difference in, in how the brain is activated or deactivated, actually. Um, and that was one of the kind of surprising findings that in spaces that have uh, that produce in people this uh, powerful spiritual response, uh, the, the brain tend to actually uh, deactivate, uh, turn off all what we consider self uh, referencing areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, for instance. Uh, and um, so in a way, this, the, the brain becomes silent. Uh, and all the areas that actually are relating us to the external world, like you know, the vision, our motor apparatus, um, also our emotional uh, well-being, are instead uh, turned on. So, you know, one of the phrases that comes a lot, uh, up a lot in the book uh, that you edited is well, one of the words is numinous, numinous meaning, you know, some kind of experience of the divine, of the transcendent. Um, but I think for a lot of us, numinousness is not something that you can put into a building. It's either there or it isn't, you know, that we, we, we react the way that we react, not because it got designed into the building, but because that's our reaction for, a, in, in, for reasons that are kind of ineffable. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit or, or maybe react even against what I just said? Well, I mean, the experience is definitely subjective. So, you know, nobody could claim your experience to be wrong. Uh, you experience whatever you experience. However, uh, as we look scientifically on this, we uh, find that uh, there is plenty of evidence that people find certain spaces, usually sacred, but not always, um, that produce the ineffable, what you call the numinous. Mm -hmm. um, so I conducted, for instance, a survey a few years back, uh, about 3,000 people responded. And uh, I asked, you know, what buildings cost the, this uh, incredible metaphysical, if you wish, experience and uh, there was pretty consistent uh, what kind of buildings they produce. So uh, doing some sort of reverse engineering, you could see there is certain uh, objective, um, material, physical, special conditions that tend to uh, invite or induce us into this state of the ineffable. Yeah. Can you give an example of what one or two of those maybe not so subjective well, qualities? Yeah, yeah, one example, which is pretty obvious, but nonetheless uh, is worth saying, is the scale, right? You enter in a, in a very large cathedral or, 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 or mosque, or, or for that matter, you see the pyramid, the great pyramids of Giza. The scale of the magnitude of these buildings is such that make you feel diminutive, uh, very small, and somehow put you in a way <laughs> in, in the right place in the cosmos. Uh, that's a good example of, of one. Another one, for instance, is the use of light and darkness uh, to produce some sort of uh, high contrast situation in which mystery or illumination, if you wish, um, uh, allows you to, to, to enter in some sort of contemplative uh, mode. I mean, you could see this definitely in the uh, Gothic cathedrals in, in Europe. Um, another example, for instance, is um, uh, sound, the acoustic of places, mm. places that tend to be uh, usually large spaces and to be very silent, producing echo, um, or the quality of the materials being used, uh, materials that tend to last for a long time, and they were crafted in, in incredibly very careful ways, uh, suggest a level of a sense of eternity or, 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 or care and love that has been recorded there. So these conditions, of course, are uh, experience unconsciously. You know, we are not um, telling ourselves or even uh, becoming aware 
of, of these things being impacting us, but nonetheless they do. And certainly they, they, they produce this, this bridge to the metaphysical realm of the spiritual uh, reality. It, it seems that with secular buildings, sometimes what they do is, and maybe even they do it a little bit after design and, and maybe even construction, is designate some space for this. I mean, in a hospital, for example, a really nice hospital, you'll find a meditation garden, you know, and it might be on the seventh floor, but it'll be landscaped with ginkgo trees and some water features and stuff like that. But in a way, it says to me, oh, you have to leave the hospital and go out on this little terrace here to have a yes. spiritual experience. We can't do it for you in this building. We just kind of added a little something for for you to do, though. React to that. Well, um, you know, sacred spaces are designed with a precise intention of, of putting you in this connection with, you know, God or divine or or some sort of larger reality. Uh, William James called the invisible order of things, which I love that term because mm-hmm. doesn't require you to believe in a particular religion. Uh, I think secular spaces usually don't have that uh, requirement. I mean, architects are not called to, pro- to produce these kind of experiences in, in, in a shopping mall. However, as you say, certain spaces uh, call for attention to these transcendental matters of meaning, orientation, or purpose, especially when we face, for instance, the case of, in the case of, of, of hospital, uh, you know, death or, 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 or health situation that are very hard to, 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 to manage. However, I, I would argue that certain uh, secular buildings um, that have not, uh, you know, usually are not paying attention to produce incredible transcendental experiences. And one example of that uh, is the, um, it's called the Oculus, the, the building of the transit station in the 9-11 um, area in New York City by uh, Santiago Calatrava, the architect, the Spanish architect. And it's largely 90, 95% of the building is underground, actually. It's a very beautiful outside white, uh, almost cathedral-like uh, organic structure. It's kind of winged and, almost. Almost it looks like it's about yes. to, to fly away. Yeah. Yes. And it's a stunning. It's a stunning place. And uh, and it's the closest to a, a cathedral that we found. But, you know, Penn Station in New York City, for instance, also has been uh, often um, mention at places where f- people find this uh, this type of um, you know ineffable experiences. But there are other places. I mean, a place that is beautiful is in the West Coast. Let's move to the West Coast. It's the Salk Institute um, in La Jolla, California. And basically, that building, designed in the '60s, um, is a place where people actually conduct biological research. And uh, the, 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 the famous space is this courtyard that faces the o- ocean, the uh, Pacific Ocean. And uh, it's, just, it's just, you know, again, time and time again, people report profound, you know, a breakthrough mm-hmm. um, spiritual experiences in this place. Well, Julio Bermudez, speaking of time, unfortunately, we're out of it. I could talk about this a lot more. Julio Bermudez is director of Sacred Space and Cultural Studies Graduate Concentration Program at the Catholic University of America School of Architecture and Planning, also editor of Transcending Architecture, Contemporary Views on Sacred Space. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>